Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. On tonight's episode, we will be reading from Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This book is about a young orphan boy and looks at some of the things that he does in his early life and some of the twists and turns that we often face in childhood. If the reading helps you get a good night's rest and you'd like to support the show, it really helps, especially in iTunes, if you're able to go and leave a comment and leave a rating. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. In the meantime, I'd like you to lie back, sit down and relax as we listen to tonight's episode. Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens Chapter 1 Treats of the place where Oliver Twist was born and of the circumstances attending his birth. Among other public buildings in a certain town which for many reasons it will be prudent to refrain from mentioning and to which I will assign no fictitious name. There is one anciently common to most towns, great or small, to wit, a workhouse. And in this workhouse was born, on a day and date, which I need not trouble myself to repeat, inasmuch it can be of no possible consequence to the reader. In this stage of the business, at all events, the item of mortality, whose name is prefixed to the head of this chapter. For a long time after it was ushered into this world of sorrow and trouble by the parish surgeon, it remained a matter of considerable doubt whether the child would survive to bear any name at all, in which case it is somewhat more than probable that these memoirs would never have appeared, or if they had, that being comprised within a couple of pages, they would have possessed the inestimable merit of being the most concise and faithful specimen of biography extant in the literature of any age or country. Although I am not disposed to maintain that the being born in a workhouse is in itself the most fortunate and enviable circumstance that can possibly befall a human being, I do mean to say that in this particular instance it was the best thing for Oliver Twist that could by possibility have occurred.
The fact is that there was considerable difficulty in inducing Oliver to take upon himself the office of respiration, a troublesome practice, but one with custom has rendered necessary to our easy existence, and for some time he lay gasping on a little flock mattress rather unequally poised between this world and the next, the balance being decidedly in favour of the latter. Now, if during this brief period Oliver had been surrounded by careful grandmothers, anxious aunts, experienced nurses, and doctors of profound wisdom, he would have most inevitably and indubitably have been killed in no time. There being nobody by, however, but a pauper old woman who was rendered rather misty by an unwanted allowance of beer and a parish surgeon who did such matters by contract. Oliver and nature fought out the point between them. The result was that, after a few struggles, Oliver breathed, sneezed, and proceeded to advertise to the inmates of the workhouse the fact of a new burden having been imposed upon the parish by setting up as loud a cry as could reasonably have been expected from a male infant who had not been possessed of that very useful appendage, a voice for a much longer space of time than three minutes and a quarter. As Oliver gave this first proof of the free and proper action of his lungs, the patchwork coverlet which was carelessly flung over the ironed bedstead rustled the pale face of a young woman was raised feebly from the pillow and a faint voice imperfectly articulated the words let me see the child and die the surgeon had been sitting with his face turned towards the fire, giving the palms of his hands a warm and a rub alternately. As the young woman spoke, he rose and, advancing to the bed's head, said, with more kindness than might have been expected of him, oh, You must not talk about dying yet, Law bless her dear heart, no, interposed the nurse, hastily depositing in her pocket a green glass bottle, the contents of which she had been tasting in a corner with evident satisfaction. Law bless her dear heart, when she has lived as long as I have, sir and 
thirteen children of her own, and all on them dead except two, and them in the workus with me. She'll know better than to take on in that way, bless her dear heart. Think what it is to be a mother. There's a dear young lamb do. Apparently, this consolatory perspective of a mother's prospects failed in producing its due effect. The patient shook her head and stretched out her hand towards the child. The surgeon deposited it in her arms. She imprinted her cold white lips passionately on his forehead, passed her hands over her face, gazed wildly round, shuddered, fell back and died. They chafed her breast, hands and temples, but the blood had stopped forever. They talked of hope and comfort. They had been strangers too long. It's all over, Mrs. Thingamy, said the surgeon at last. Ah, poor dear, so it is, said the nurse, picking up the cork of the green bottle. It had fallen out on the pillow as she stooped to take the child up. Poor dear, you needn't mind sending up to me. If the child cries nurse, said the surgeon, putting on his gloves with great deliberation, it's very likely it will be troublesome. Give it a little gruel if it is. He put on his hat and pausing by the bedside on his way to the door added, She was a good looking girl too. Where did she come from? She was brought here last night, replied the old woman, by the overseer's order. She was found lying in the street. She had walked some distance, for her shoes were worn to pieces. But where she came from, or where she was going to, nobody knows. The surgeon leaned over the body and raised the left hand. The old story, he said, shaking his head. No wedding ring, I see. Ah, good night. The medical gentleman walked away to dinner, and the nurse, having once more applied herself to the green bottle, sat down on a low chair before the fire, and proceeded to dress the infant. What an excellent example of the power of dress young Oliver Twist was. Wrapped in the blanket which had hitherto formed his only covering, he might have been the child of a nobleman or a beggar. It would have been hard for the haughtiest stranger to have assigned him his proper station in society. But now that he was enveloped 
in the old Calico robes which had grown yellow in the same service. He was badged and ticketed and fell into his place at once. A parish child, the orphan of a workhouse, the humble, half-starved drudge, to be cuffed and buffeted through the world, despised by all and pitied by none. Oliver cried lustily. If he could have known that he was an orphan, left to the tender mercies of church wardens and overseers, perhaps he would have cried louder. Chapter 2 Treats of Oliver Twist's Growth, Education and Board For the next eight or ten months, Oliver was the victim of systematic course of treachery and deception. He was brought up by hand. The hungry and destitute situation of the infant orphan was duly reported by the workhouse authorities to the parish authorities. The parish authorities inquired with dignity of the workhouse authorities, whether there was no female then domiciled in the house who was in a situation to impart to Oliver Twist the consolation and nourishment of which he stood in need. The workhouse authorities replied with humility that there was not. Upon this, the parish authorities magnanimously and humanely resolved that Oliver should be farmed, or in other words, that he should be dispatched to a branch workhouse some three miles off, where twenty or thirty other juvenile offenders against the poor laws rolled about the floor all day without the inconvenience of too much food or too much clothing under the parental superintendence of an elderly female who received the culprits at and for the consideration of seven pence half penny per small head per week. Seven pence half pennies worth per week is a good round diet for a child. A great deal may be got for seven pence half penny, quite enough to overload its stomach and make it uncomfortable. The elderly female was a woman of wisdom and experience. She knew what was good for children, and she had a very accurate perception of what was good for herself. So she appropriated the greater part of the weekly stipend to her own use, and consigned the rising parochial generation to even a shorter allowance than was originally provided for them, thereby finding in the lowest depth a deeper still and proving herself a very great experimental philosopher. Everybody knows the story 
of another experimental philosopher who had a great theory about a horse being able to live without eating and who demonstrated it so well that he had got his own horse down to a straw a day and would unquestionably have rendered him a very spirited and rampacious animal on nothing at all if he had not died four and twenty hours before he was to have his first comfortable bait of air. Unfortunately, for the experimental philosophy of the female to whose protecting care Oliver Twist was delivered over, a similar result usually attended the operation of her system, for at the very moment when the child had contrived to exist upon the smallest possible portion of the weakest possible food, it did perversely happen in eight and a half cases out of ten. Either that it sickened from wanton cold or fell into the fire from neglect or got half smothered by accident. In any one of which cases the miserable little being was usually summoned into another world and there gathered to the feathers it had never known in this. Occasionally, when there was some more than usually interesting inquest upon a parish child who had been overlooked in turning up a bedstead or inadvertently scalded to death when there happened to be a washing, though the latter accident was very scarce, anything approaching to a washing being of rare occurrence in the farm, the jury would take it into their heads to ask troublesome questions, or the parishioners would rebelliously affix their signatures to the remonstrance. But these impertinences were speedily checked by the evidence of the surgeon and the testimony of the beadle, the former of whom had always opened the body and found nothing inside, which was very probable indeed, and the latter of whom invariably swore whatever the parish wanted, which was very self-devotional. Besides the board made periodical pilgrimages to the farm, and always sent the beadle the day before to say they were going. The children were neat and clean to behold when they went, and what more would the people have? It cannot be expected that this system of farming would produce any very extraordinary or luxuriant crop Oliver Twist's ninth birthday found him a pale, thin child, somewhat diminutive in stature, and decidedly small in circumference. 
but nature or inheritance had implanted a good, sturdy spirit in Oliver's breast. It had had plenty of room to expand, thanks to the spare diet of the establishment, and perhaps to this circumstance may be attributed his having any ninth birthday at all. Be this as it may, however, it was his ninth birthday, and he was keeping it in the coal cellar with a select party of two other gentlemen who, after participating with him in a sound thrashing, had been looked up for atrociously presuming to be hungry when Mrs. Mann, the good lady of the house, was unexpectedly startled by the apparition of Mr. Bumble the Beetle striving to undo the wicket of the garden gate. Goodness gracious, is that you, Mr. Bumble, sir? And Mrs. Mann, thrusting her head out of the window, in well-affected ecstasies of joy. Susan, take Oliver and them two brats upstairs and wash them directly. My heart alive, Mr. Bumble, how glad I am to see you. Now Mr. Bumble was a fat man, a cloeric, so instead of responding to this open-hearted salutation in a kindred spirit, he gave the little wicket a tremendous shake and then bestowed upon it a kick which could have emanated from no leg but a beetle's Law only think, said Mrs. Mann, running out for the three boys had been removed by this time. Only think of that, that I should have forgotten that the gate was bolted on the inside on account of them dear children. Walk in, sir, walk in, pray, Mr. Bumble, do, sir. Although this invitation was accompanied with a curtsy that might have softened the heart of a church warden, it by no means mollified the beetle. Do you think this respectful or proper conduct, Mrs. Mann, inquired Mr. Bumble, grasping his cane to keep the parish officers awaiting at your garden gate, when they come here upon parochial business, with the parochial orphans. Are you aware, Mrs. Mann, that you are, as I may say, a parochial delegate and a stipendiary? I'm sure, Mr. Bumble, that I was only a telling one or two of the dear children, as is so fond of you, that it was you a coming, replied Mrs. Mann, with great humility. Mr. Bumble had a great idea of his oratorical powers and his importance. He had displayed the one and vindicated the other. He relaxed. Well, well, Mrs. Mann, he replied in a calmer tone. It may be as you say, it may be. Lead the way. Mrs. Mann, for I come on business and have something to say. 
Mrs. Mann ushered the beetle into a small parlour with a brick floor, placed a seat for him, and officiously deposited his cocked hat and cane on the table before him. Mr. Bumble wiped from his forehead the perspiration which his walk had engendered, glanced complacently at the cocked hat, and smiled. Yes, he smiled. Beetles are but men, and Mr. Bumble smiled. Now don't you be offended at what I am going to say, observed Mrs. Mann, with captivating sweetness. You've had a long walk, you know, or I wouldn't mention it. Now will you take a little drop of something, Mr. Bumble? Not a drop, nor a drop, said Mr. Bumble, waving his right hand in a dignified but placid manner. I think you will, said Mrs. Mann, who had noticed the tone of the refusal and the gesture that accompanied it. Just a little drop with a little cold water and a lump of sugar. Mr. Bumble coughed. Now just a little drop, said Mrs. Mann persuasively. What is it? inquired the beetle. Why, it's what I'm obliged to keep a little of in the house to put into any blessed infant's staffy. When they ain't well, Mr. Bumble replied. Mrs. Mann, as she opened a corner cupboard and took down a bottle and glass. It's gin. I'll not deceive you, Mr. B. It's gin. And that is the conclusion of tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy. And if not, always welcome to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I look forward to bringing you more stories. And for now, good night.